Good morning. It's good to see you. Glad you made it to the end of term three. Um, wonder whether you ever thought you wouldn't make it to the end of term three. But you're here and I'm glad. Will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 again? And to the last paragraph, to Matthew 13 and from verse 53. And when Jesus finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were amazed and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Jude? And aren't his sisters all here with us? Where then did he get all these things? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the encouragements we receive from it. We thank you, too, for the warnings we receive from it. And this morning we pray that you might make each of us attentive to your voice, that we might hear what you would say to us in these words, and that your word might have its way with us, so that we live as disciples of the Lord Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. A remarkable series of responses to Jesus are captured for us in these few words at the end of Matthew 13. Those who heard Jesus that day were first astonished by what he said, but then they would be offended at him. But, uh, and Jesus himself would describe their reaction to him as withholding honour, despising him, the same word that's used in the Greek version of Isaiah 53.3. And finally... What would stand out was their unbelief. It's just a small paragraph, but it is staggering in its assessment of these people and their response to Jesus, and ultimately it shows us how we can cloak unbelief with knowledge. I wonder whether you've been down George Street on one of those days after the Olympic Games when our athletes have returned home. In the weeks prior, uh, we've watched those representing our country competing against the very best in the world. You know, Colin Bale would be fixed to his television during the cycling. We've seen their triumphs. We've shared their disappointments. We've paid attention to the medal tally and wondered how we were doing in relation to the rest of the world. But then they've come home and the crowds have lined the streets and they've been greeted like heroes. People who grew up in the next suburb or in the next street. People we went to school with. Or simply people whose local sporting career we've followed for some time. And now they've come home after competing on the international stage and they are our heroes. The hometown girl, the hometown guy, done good. It's a stark contrast to the way Jesus was greeted when he came home to Nazareth came to the local synagogue and began to share with his own people the message of life he'd taken to those in other places. 
And that is entirely the, the opposite of what you would expect. Because this man from this little backwater, this small rural town in a remote Roman province, had put, and forever has put, Nazareth on the map. I mean, because of him, people still visit that little town 20 centuries later. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel had asked Philip in another gospel. And you might remember that Philip had answered, come and see. And so he came and he saw. And what he saw was a preacher who held the crowds in the palm of his hand, one who commanded the wind and the waves, who healed the sick, who cast out demons, who forgave sins and offered comfort, who spoke of God and the kingdom of heaven. No one had ever done what this man did. And he was a man from Nazareth. Surely they had a right to be proud, to cheer when he came home, to listen and smile and rejoice because the one who had done all of this, well, he was one of ours. But that's not the way it worked out in Nazareth on that day. And by the end of that day, we will know why. And it's a serious warning. Because what was happening that day in Nazareth is happening every day all over our city. And it is just as dangerous now as it was then. This paragraph divides uh, neatly for us into three parts. His return, his reception, his response. Let's start with his return in verses 53 and 54. We're told that when Jesus had finished teaching in parables at Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he headed up to Nazareth, the country town in the hills, the place where he had grown up. It seems Jesus might have visited Nazareth a number of times during his earthly ministry. And it wasn't all that good any of those times. There was no parade to lead him into the village square, no palm branches and singing as there would be one day in Jerusalem, no billboards announcing his arrival and inviting all and sundry to come and hear him this week in the local synagogue, one night only. He wasn't fated as the celebrity preacher. He just came to his hometown and he taught in their synagogue. Nothing particularly unusual about that. It was a custom in many synagogues to invite visitors or newcomers to come and speak. The account in Luke 4 might be a fuller account of this particular visit of Jesus, or it might be a record of one of those other times. Then he had been given a scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read, and he took it up and read it, and he spoke to those in front of him of what they had just heard. They marvelled then, Luke tells us, at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And a few moments later, they tried to kill him. Here, Matthew records that Jesus taught in their synagogue. And that's because Jesus' earthly ministry, those three years, was fundamentally a teaching ministry. He spoke the words God had given him to say. Yes, he also did the works God had given him to do, but at every point he taught his disciples and he taught those who gathered around them. Crowds came to hear him. And no doubt they were somewhat frustrated with those other crowds who simply came because they wanted to get something, a blessing or healing from some disease or other. He was a teacher first and foremost. 
He told his disciples in Mark 1 when they approached him about the crowd gathering for healing, let's go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus came to Nazareth and he taught in the local synagogue. He didn't come for a holiday. He didn't rush to the family home to take a break and get away from the pressure that had been mounting all around him. He came and he taught. And how was this teaching received? Well, secondly, his reception. The first reaction was astonishment. We're not told in Matthew what he said, what was the content of his teaching. If it is the same incident recorded in Luke 4, then we know that he taught them how the prophecy of Isaiah 61 was fulfilled in him. But as I said, it may not be the same incident. We just know he taught them in their synagogue. And it astounded them. He spoke of God as no one they'd ever heard had spoken of God. The connections he made between what we believe and how we live, his wisdom, well, it blew them away. None of their regular preachers spoke like that. He was off the charts. This man really knew what he was talking about. Now, there are a number of different directions they could have gone from there. They could have recognised right away that God had given him these words, that what he said rang true with life and carried an authority that could only have come from God. They could have believed him and followed him from that moment on. They could have been cut to the quick right away and called out, what must we do to be saved? As the crowd did on the day of Pentecost. Or they could have blocked their ears and walked away, refusing to listen, refusing to engage. They could even have got angry, as in Luke 4, and seek to be rid of him. But none of those options is what happened that day, according to Matthew. Instead, they explained him away. Just a couple of chapters before in Matthew's Gospel, the Pharisees had tried to explain away Jesus. This man, they'd claimed, only cast out demons by the prince of demons. We know what this is. We've worked him out. We know how he does this. He's in league with the devil while pretending to be the emissary of God. They knew the crowd was beginning to take notice and they wanted to nip this in the bud. So they explained him away with a lie that they'd invented. Here, though, that particular day in Nazareth, those who heard him and were initially astonished sought to explain him away to turn the focus away from the challenge of his words by what they believed they already knew about him. How can he know these things? How can he do these things when we know who he is? We know where he came from. We're not phased by him. We can account for him in a way that takes the gloss off the astonishment we first felt. He has no business teaching us like that, doing things like that. We don't know where he got all this, but it isn't his. He's the carpenter's son. He's Mary's boy. He's one of those lads who used to knock around and make a nuisance of themselves, remember? His brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Jude. And his sisters are still here. They live in town, just up the road there. He's not as special as he first appeared. 
But since we've been reading this gospel from the beginning, we know that they have less than half the story. And by claiming it's the whole story, they're making a terrible and dangerous mistake. The carpenter they'd mentioned, he knew. He'd heard the angel say, that which is conceived in your wife is from the Holy Spirit. He'd witnessed the worship of the wise men from the east, the miraculous rescue from Herod. He'd heard what was said by others about this child in the temple. The mother they'd mentioned, Mary, she was there too, and according to Luke's Gospel, she'd been told, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, the people of Nazareth thought they knew. They thought they had the categories to understand Jesus. But there was so much more they did not know. In the end, they didn't like the challenge he represented the interruption to the rhythm of their life he threatened to be. And so they endeavoured to explain him away. They just buried the evidence beneath what they believed they already knew so that they didn't have to take him seriously and they didn't have to change and they didn't have to fall on their knees before him. Matthew sums it up here. And they took offence at him. The great Swiss reformer John Calvin once wrote, men are not simply hindered by ignorance, they deliberately manufacture offences so that they need not follow when God calls. And we can recognise the same manoeuvre all around us today, can't we? The person who sidesteps Jesus' claim on their lives by an appeal to what they think they already know about him, Oh, I know all about Jesus. I watched that program the other night. And I know he's nothing like the person the church later painted him to be. He was just an itinerant preacher, another messianic pretender. They, they were a dime a dozen in rural Palestine in the first century. I've heard the whole story of Jesus. Yes, I've read the Gospels. They're just so unreliable. The simple piety of a rural peasant was transformed by the power brokers centuries later into this elaborate hoax and they think they know better than those who follow Jesus today. They turn their fractured knowledge into an excuse not to listen. They look for and they manufacture offence so that they do not need to follow when God calls. It's what one writer calls the, the Nazareth rationality, cloaking unbelief with knowledge where it's not so much their ignorance as their knowledge that gets in the way of faith. I've already got a category for Jesus. I've already worked him out. I know who he is. I know where he came from. And it's a strategy we ourselves are quite familiar with, aren't we? I've already got that answer. I've already got a settled position on that. And my knowledge, even if in theory I acknowledge it's limited and fallible, it needs recalibration from time to time, my knowledge becomes a shield that keeps me from being challenged. And instead of being recalibrated, and instead of being challenged, we take offence. Familiarity might in many cases breed contempt, 
but it all too easily constructs an offence. We stumble, we are scandalised, and we take offence. And when we do, the shield we think we've created becomes a prison. For what kind of knowledge is it that renders you unable to trust Jesus? Which brings us to the third section of this paragraph, his response. Having begun with amazement, those in Jesus' hometown proceeded to questions they believed they already had the answers to. He is the carpenter's son. His mother's name's Mary. His brothers are James, Joseph, Simon and Jude. He's just ordinary. He's just one of us. He's nothing special. He does not know more than we know. We do not need to listen. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on. A prophet is not without honour is not despised except in his own hometown and in his own house, Jesus said. It's one of two places in the Gospels where Jesus seems willing to identify himself with the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, called to preach to a people who will not listen and will not obey. Prophets who were tortured and and tormented, who were slaughtered rather than listened to. But that this would be true of Jesus too goes beyond his likeness to the prophets who spoke the word of God to a contrary people. John's gospel opens, you might remember, amongst other things with the statement, the true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. There you are. It's not just the prophet who is dishonoured, who is despised by those who should have received him. It's also true of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And centuries before, in the words given to one of the Old Testament prophets, in that passage that uses the very same word Jesus uses here, in Isaiah 53, we read of the suffering servant to come who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And the tragedy was that for a moment they had stood back in awe when he taught them in their synagogue but only for a moment. What was happening in Nazareth that day was an exercise in unbelief. He might have come with astonishing wisdom and power, but they took offence at him. They dishonoured him. They despised him. They refused to believe. And they cloaked it all with a claim to know. But when that cloak was pushed aside, all that was left was an obstinate refusal to believe. That's why Jesus would not do many miracles there. That's why, as Mark put it, he could not do many miracles there. He was not going to do just party tricks to keep them amused. His great acts of mercy, his miracles, were demonstrations of God's glory, responses to human need and correlates of faith. 
but they refused to believe. And so he refused to do many miracles among them. Friends, that this rejection at Nazareth is a warning we need to recognise and to heed. It is possible to cloak unbelief with knowledge. It is a daily occurrence across this city. But not for a moment is Jesus fooled by that strategy. They took offence at him. They sought to explain him away. But the stark and unvarnished truth of the matter was they simply refused to believe. They would not have their life disturbed. They would not allow themselves to be challenged. And because they did not trust him, he did not exercise his power among them. You are in a place here where, amongst other things, we seek to pass on knowledge. That's a very good thing. But unbelief can be present even here. And there is abundant evidence in history of those who have used theological knowledge as a cloak for unbelief. Don't fall into that trap, will you? Won't it be terrifying on the last day for that church or that theological college where Jesus' words in this passage ring true? A prophet is not without honour except in his own town and in his own house. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please preserve us from unbelief. Please help us to trust. Please keep us from using anything to be a barrier between us and you, to cloak our unbelief. And let it be on that last day that we bow and give to your son the glory and worship that is his due, the honour that belongs to him. For we ask it in Jesus' name.